If you've been with us the last few Sundays, uh, we've been in a series just exploring our value of participation uh, here at Vox and what it means to be engaged as a community. And, you know, we do have a few values that have surfaced over the years uh, that shape how we practice Christ's teaching and, and life uh, as a community. So we have artistry, posture of humility, we have empathy, participation, peculiarity, and mystery. But when it comes to participation, this is how we articulate it. We live in a culture where being in a church means shopping and consuming community. We invite you into a beautiful alternative liturgy, which means the work of the people. Find your plot of the garden within the community and the world we live in and get your hands dirty. We welcome you as co-creators to become the hands and feet of Christ. Cultivate your soul, help us hold space for the spiritual journey of others, and lean into the literal call to care for and serve the earth we belong in. And so the past few weeks, Jenna, Christopher, myself, you know, we've been exploring what participation has looked like in the Vox community over the years and how we might embody some sustainable rhythms and offer our unique expressions as a mutual part of this community. And so this morning, we'll be reflecting on this aspect of participation. Cultivate your soul. Help us hold space for the spiritual journey of others. It's a reflection on how our participation involves our individual and collective spiritual formation and what it means for us to grow. And so before we jump in, I want to give you all a moment just to reflect on this question. Now, what comes to mind when you think about experiencing growth? Right? What, are, what are some of the factors that contribute to growth? So I'll give you a moment to reflect on that, and if you're willing, uh, go ahead and with a neighbor, just kind of share what comes to mind, what, what surfaces for you. If you're online, feel free to throw that on the online chat. Uh, I'll give you a moment to do that. So if you're willing, we'd love to hear just whatever thoughts came to mind when it comes to what contributes to growth or what comes to, to mind when you think about growth. So any thoughts, what comes to mind? Discomfort, okay, growing can cause some discomfort. Anything else? Oh, pain, did you say pain? Yeah, growth can cause pain, yeah, growing pains. Is that what you guys mentioned too? Oh, you're, you're speaking on behalf of them? Okay, pain. Anything else, what comes to mind for growth? Nutrition, like being fed? Possibility? Therapy? Sometimes it has to happen after failure, so that actually creates room for growth. Uh, so last year, my physical body started telling me that it is definitely no longer in the prime of my 20-year-old self, which, if I'm being honest, was a very long time ago. Um, but there were multiple times where I would bend down to either pick up a piece of paper, tie my shoes, and then my back would give out, right? And it was just, there'd be this sharp, piercing pain, just, you know, it was not fun. And before I could recover in usually a day, but now it takes like weeks. Um, and so earlier this year, I signed up for this program uh, called Hinge Health, uh, which offers an app and like a health coach uh, just to, you know, help address back issues and pain. And I was hoping to experience some growth, like just when it came to the strength and flexibility 
of my back. And as I started doing the exercises and the stretches, like I could actually feel a noticeable difference, right? And I was like, man, I wish I had known about this long time ago. And even though I was on my sabbatical, I was fully committed to the program. Like, didn't matter if we were out in public. Um, apparently, Rachel secretly took some selfies uh, that captured me doing my back stretches. This was in a ferry station in New Zealand, uh, where I also convinced my kids to participate with me, too. Uh, <laughs> and, and, one of the, yeah. and one of the things that the app and my health coach like, consistently remind me is that movement is key, right? That it doesn't matter the range or even the intensity, but movement, as long as there is movement, that's what's important. I'm experiencing growth towards a healthier back. If I'm stagnant or inactive, right, that just increases the possibility of pain and injury. And so movement is necessary for growth. And for us, when we talk about cultivating our soul, right, that involves movement where we're tilling, we're tending, we're fostering, we're nurturing our internal formation and growth. And so the question I want to explore this morning is what is the movement that we're invited to as we cultivate our souls, right? As we participate in this community, what does spiritual formation look like both individually and collectively? And as we reflect on Paul's letter to the church in Rome, we'll explore some aspects that he highlights that could facilitate formation and growth. And so we start in verse nine. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. And I'll be honest, it feels like Paul is just riffing here, right? I mean, he's just like throwing out a bunch of one-liners just whatever random thoughts come to mind. But if we go back to the beginning of this chapter and what Jenna talk, talked on last week, you know, this is all in the context of what it means to live in a way that's in alignment with who God is. Right? Paul is reflecting on, on how we present ourselves, our physical bodies, when we engage God and others in community. And the question he's addressing right, is whether or not we're being transformed whether we're actually moving towards the heart and mind of God. And in a way, he's giving us a snapshot of what spiritual formation should look like in our lives. Uh, if you've been at Vox for a little while, uh, you might have heard me talk about this before. But I was introduced to, to this really helpful framework that reshaped my understanding of what healthy spiritual formation could look like. Uh, there's an anthropologist named Paul Hybert. And he developed models known as the bounded set and the centered set models. And in a bounded set model, the focus is on establishing a specific boundary. And for many of us who grew up in conservative or fundamentalist uh, church environments, that boundary was our beliefs or our behaviors or specific rules or doctrine. And once that boundary is set and established, it makes it easy to, to determine who's in and who's out. And the problem with this model is that there's no movement, right? There's no growth. 
because all our focus and energy shifts to defending that boundary at all costs. We become gatekeepers who don't want to lose control. And that ultimately limits our ability to cultivate our soul, to experience growth. And I think many of us have shared in this kind of experience. But in a centered set model, right, the center becomes the focal point. The focus isn't whether we're in or out, but whether we're moving towards the center. And as a result, it becomes much more expansive instead of restrictive. Because as you move towards the center, which is actually an infinite point, there's more freedom for growth and understanding. And in our context, we're invited to move towards the center where Christ is, moving towards the life and teachings that he modeled for us. And part of what is at the center where Christ is, is love, right? That's what Paul is highlighting here as well, that love should motivate everything we do. He writes in another letter that without love, who we are, what we do, is not in alignment with God, because God is love. Christ is essentially, he was love embodied when he came to earth. And so for us, as we consider the movement of our spiritual formation, we're invited to center ourselves around love. Instead of focusing on establishing boundaries to determine who's in and out, how are we moving towards love the way Christ embodied love? Because when love is at the center, it transforms and it impacts everything around us. Uh, in his book, Love is the Way, Bishop Michael B. Curry puts it this way. He says, love is a firm commitment to act for the well-being of someone other than yourself. It can be personal or political, individual or communal, intimate or public. Love will not be segregated to the private, personal precincts of life. Love, as I read it in the Bible, is ubiquitous. It affects all aspects of life. And love affects all aspects of life because it should be at the center of everything. And so often we think about love in terms of a feeling or an ideal to pursue, but there is a practicality to love that needs to be part of our formation. And that's what Paul is reminding us if we look back at what he writes, right? If our love is genuine, then our lives will be congruent with what's good. We'll express mutual affection and elevate and advocate for others. We'll live a life of service. We'll find ways to meet the needs of our community and our neighborhood and city, right? If we're centering ourselves around love, there should be practical outlets of service and hospitality. Christopher mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I do want to highlight it again. Like, we've been very fortunate to start a partnership with Keep Austin Fed. You know, their mission is to reduce hunger by connecting surplus food with neighbors in need. And based on their statistics, one in seven here in Austin don't know where their next meal is coming from. And out of that group, one in three are actually children. And on the flip side, over 30% of food in this country goes uneaten and usually ends up in the landfill. And so earlier this year, they reached out and asked if they could use a portion of our property to house a walk-in fridge, right, to store all the surplus food that gets donated from restaurants or events. Turns out we've got this corner outside here uh, that's essentially run-down asphalt and a lot of weeds. So basically the perfect location for a walk-in fridge. 
And they did an amazing job redoing the space out there. And so a couple of weeks ago, they held a ribbon cutting ceremony to mark the official launch of the fridge. Uh, Councilwoman Natasha Harper-Madison made an appearance since this building and the fridge sits in her district. And this is also the neighborhood that she was born and raised in. And she offered an inspirational reflection about what this act of love will offer for our neighborhood and city. Uh, she was also very excited that she got to keep the ceremonial scissors. I think of a picture of it. <laughs> and so for us as a community, that, that's one practical expression of love that we're invited to participate in, right? To facilitate and offer hospitality to strangers through food. And for us, how are we being practical in our expression of love, right? Maybe a practice we can try this week is to find an expression of service or hospitality, right? Maybe volunteering with our local partner, Urban Roots, uh, this coming Saturday morning. We need 15 people, right? And it's finally fall weather, so it should feel great. Or maybe it's signing up to become a driver for Keep Austin Fed, right? That, to help transport the surplus food where it needs to go. Or there could be other small, tangible ways to practice love with our own neighbors, our coworkers, strangers that we come across. How are we invited to move towards being a more loving person? So let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. And then we continue in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And so when Paul is writing this, you know, the Roman Empire was at the very top of the power structure. You know, this new movement of people following Jesus was seen as a political threat. And the empire chose the path of oppression and violence to try and extinguish this movement. And so Christians easily became a scapegoat. And scapegoating has existed long before the Roman Empire, and it still exists to this day. There's always a group of people or individuals who will exist outside of that bounded set. Those who don't fit within the structure. Those who are different from the majority culture. And whether it's racism or patriarchy or homophobia or xenophobia, right, the boundaries that are established are meant to inflict harm and pain. And yet Paul's invitation is to respond through nonviolence, to follow the example of Jesus. And so for us, as we consider the movement of our spiritual formation, we're invited to practice nonviolence in our lives, in our community. And as we move toward the nonviolence Jesus embodied, it's, it's not a passive stance or simply an absence of violence. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he reflected on how we're invited to respond to the harmful intent of others, right? So when it comes to people and systems that are being harmful through violence, he said, this normal and healthy discontent, right, with the people or systems can be channeled through the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action, right? It's not a passive state. And the way Paul describes it is that there's an active presence of engaging those who have harmful intent, right? To bless 
is to invoke God's favor. And in our attempt to break the cycle of violence, right, not continue to perpetuate the harm and hurt that we've received, we're actually invoking God's favor when we choose to break that cycle. That's what it means to bless those who persecute. Because love of enemy is the highest form of love that Jesus invites us to. That's the path of nonviolence Jesus chose. Uh, years ago, Eileen Egan and, and John Deere, uh, they created this vow of nonviolence as a way to move people towards the practice of nonviolence. And I thought it would be helpful for us just to hear it and to listen to it as a way to reflect on what it might mean to move towards the nonviolence of Christ. So this is the vow of nonviolence. Recognizing the violence in my own heart, yet trusting in the goodness and mercy of God, I vow for one year to practice the nonviolence of Jesus who taught us in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. You have learned how it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you will be daughters and sons of your creator in heaven. And so I vow to carry out in my life the love and example of Jesus by striving for peace within myself and seeking to be a peacemaker in my daily life, by accepting suffering rather than inflicting it by refusing to retaliate in the face of provocation and violence, by persevering in nonviolence of tongue and heart, by living conscientiously and simply so that I do not deprive others of the means to live, and by actively resisting evil and working nonviolently to abolish war and the causes of war from my own heart and from the face of the earth. God, I trust you in your sustaining love and believe that just as you gave me the grace and desire to offer this, so you will also bestow abundant grace to fulfill it. Let me, let me read that list of practical expressions one more time so that I can sink in. And if it's helpful, you, know, you can close your eyes, just listen to it and just reflect on what stands out for you as you hear it. And so I vow to carry out in my life the love and example of Jesus by striving for peace within myself and seeking to be a peacemaker in my daily life, by accepting suffering rather than inflicting it, by refusing to retaliate in the face of provocation and violence, by persevering in nonviolence of tongue and heart, by living conscientiously and simply so that I do not deprive others of the means to live, and by actively resisting evil and working nonviolently to abolish war and the causes of war from my own heart and from the face of the earth. And so what is it that we're invited to as we move towards the nonviolence of Christ? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep, with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. And then we close in verse 16. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. And so Paul closes here uh, with a warning 
just against our tendency to elevate our own opinions and beliefs, which can lead to arrogance and, and condescension. And instead, we're invited to adopt a posture of humility, which is a common theme throughout scripture, right? In James, he writes about God being opposed to the proud, but giving grace to the humble, right? It's essentially how Jesus chose to enter this world. The act of a, of a divine God physically entering a human body demonstrated an authentic posture of humility. And when Paul invites us to associate with the lowly, right, those who are marginalized by society, uh, it's an invitation to learn from unexpected people and places. It's why Jesus made it a central part of his experience here on earth, right, to live and be with the outcast and marginalized. And what Jesus taught and modeled can only fully be understood if we're with those who are on the margins, those who are oppressed. Jesus didn't start a revolution by using power and violence to overthrow the empire, but instead he chose to use love and nonviolence. And that in itself invites us to question our assumptions about power and position and privilege. And that kind of curiosity offers us an antidote to arrogance an antidote to an overflated view of ourselves and our beliefs. And so for us, as we consider the movement of our own spiritual formation, we're invited to embody curiosity, right? The curiosity that comes with a posture of humility and moves us towards the mystery of Christ. It's an invitation to continually rethink and renew the ways we understand God, the ways we understand each other. Uh, Adam Grant recently wrote a book called Think Again that explores the art of rethinking and learning to question our opinions. And he argues that many of us favor the comfort of certainty over the discomfort of doubt. And there are times when that certainty leads to arrogance and an unwillingness to consider another way of doing things. So he gives the example of BlackBerry, if you remember that phone company, and how they essentially own the smart the smart market phone, the smartphone market in the corporate world. And they, then came this big disruptor, right? Steve Jobs, who insisted on getting rid of the physical keyboard on phones and just going with an entire screen. And the creators of BlackBerry refused to rethink the option of removing the keyboard, right? They thought that idea would never work. And by the time the iPhone went on to be the most popular device, it was too late for BlackBerry. And in his book, he offers three images of how we tend to think and engage others. So we either think like a preacher, a prosecutor, or a politician. So as a preacher, our tendency is to defend our sacred beliefs, right? And convince others to believe the exact same things. As a prosecutor, our tendency is to prove the other side wrong, right? To point out all the flaws and gaps in other people's beliefs. And as a politician, our tendency is to campaign for approval, right? And so we simply adapt to whatever someone wants to hear or whatever will give us an advantage, not necessarily being grounded in our own thinking. And while those are typically how we think, he proposes a fourth image, right? Thinking like a scientist. Because a scientist by nature has curiosity to ask questions and experiment to test a theory and is always open to learning something new, 
right? Open to considering a different angle or different understanding. And what if the question we continue to ask ourselves and be curious about, right, is whether or not who we are or what we do, what we believe is in alignment with the life and teachings of Christ. Having that as a central question can allow us to maintain curiosity instead of being overconfident in our assumptions that might actually be harmful and hurtful to ourselves and to others. And if we embodied curiosity in that way, right, how would that impact the way we experience growth and our ability to create a space, safe space for, for those who stumble into this community? And so, Vox, as we close this morning, and my hope is that as we cultivate our souls, as we cultivate our spiritual formation, we would be intentional about moving towards the center where Christ is. That as a community, we can continue to offer a safe space of safety and curiosity that doesn't harm those who are still processing their spiritual journey. And that we would find ways to be grounded by embodying a practical love and nonviolence that Christ modeled for us. And so let me close with this prayer. God, who is love and invites us to love, always expansive and never exclusive, may we be centered and grounded with love that knows no limit or condition. Jesus, who loved enemies, chose to end the unending cycle of violence. May we offer safety and forgiveness to create a healing space of nonviolence. And spirit who guides us in and through mystery, may we embody humility and curiosity to cultivate our souls for growth and discovery. And so we ask all this in the love of God, our creator, the nonviolence of Christ, and the mystery of the spirit. Amen.